it's a quick reminder of how small we really are. Amen? It's a reminder that this universe of ours is unimaginably huge. It's a reminder that you and I are, are tiny little specks on a tiny little peanut planet in the middle of this huge universe of ours. Uh, no wonder the psalmist wrote in Psalm 8, 4, What is man that you are mindful of him, O God, the son of man that you care for him? When you think about it, it's pretty remarkable. We here in our solar system are within the Milky Way galaxy. Do you know that astronomers believe that within our galaxy, the Milky Way, there is somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 billion stars? That's a number we can't even wrap our minds around. That's like national debt huge. A hundred billion stars just in our Milky Way galaxy. And astronomers believe the Milky Way galaxy is one of only about a hundred billion galaxies in the universe. So imagine a hundred billion galaxies, each with a hundred billion stars within them. This universe is huge. And yet the Bible makes it clear that with this immense, unimaginably large universe, the creator of all of this actually cares about you. And the creator of these billions upon billions upon billions of stars actually cares about me. And it's mind-blowing. It's unfathomable that the creator of this immense universe would love you and me. What an amazing notion that is. It seems ridiculous to some people. It seems foolish that God would somehow, if he does exist out there, care about this peanut planet and care about a speck of dust like you and me on this peanut planet. It seems foolish to so many. But as we'll see today in 1 Corinthians 1, God has a funny habit of doing things that sound foolish to us, things that sound unbelievable, but are very, very true nonetheless. Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As we continue this But God message series today, we'll be in the New Testament today, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible with you, I encourage you to pull one of those blue Bibles from the rack in front of you. That's why we have those there in case you forget your Bible on a Sunday. But we do encourage you to bring your own next week. We want you to see it for yourself. I never want you just to take my word for it or whoever's preaching up here. Don't just take their word for it. Test what we say with Scripture to make sure that it lines up with God's Word. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in just a moment. We'll start in verse 18. Say amen if you're there. And before we dive in, let me lead us in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day you've given us. We thank you for the privilege of being in your house. Uh, we thank you for the privilege of having air conditioning that works. Lord, that's a blessing. And we thank you most of all that your word is living and active and ready to speak to our minds and hearts today. Lord, be with those that are here in person today. Be with those who are watching the service right now on Facebook Live or will watch it later today. Lord, we pray that you would speak to them. Speak to us through your word. And all God's people said, turn to the person next to you and say, here we go. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Here we go. For the message of the cross is 
foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, which happens to be a stumbling block to Jews, and it sounds like foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Hmm. What an amazing thing for Paul to write here. Some of you remember why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. He had spent some 18 months there in the city of Corinth on the, uh, in the country of Greece, planting that church in what was kind of like the sin city, the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Prostitutes on every corner, up on top, above the city, that plateaued area called Acro-Corinth, where at one point in history they had boasted 1,000 temple prostitutes. There were bars all over the place. It was a convergence of north-south and east-west trade routes, and so there was a lot of movement, there was a lot of mobility, there was a lot of sin going on in Corinth. And in the heart of Sin City, Paul spent 18 months planning this church. And after he planted the church, he had been gone a few months, and he wrote back to them for two reasons. Reason number one, he found out that, uh, you know what, they had some questions because they were new in their faith. They didn't understand this thing about communion. DJ just read uh, for us a few minutes ago from 1 Corinthians 11. Paul in that chapter was answering some of their questions about the Lord's Supper. Uh, They didn't know much about spiritual gifts, so he writes chapters 12, 13, and 14 to address spiritual gifts. They had questions about marriage and singleness, so he tackles some of those questions right around chapter 7. And so he's answering these questions they had, but the second reason he wrote this book is because he discovered that there was certain sin in the church that had to be rebuked and dealt with. And the first sin that he deals with here in chapter 1 is the sin of division. You see, a lot of people in the Corinthian church were buying into this whole, uh, my pastor is better than your pastor bit. You know, some people were saying, well, you know what, I I follow Peter. He's better than your favorite apostle. Oh, yeah, well, I follow Apollos. He can teach circles around Peter. Oh, yeah, well, I follow Paul. Well, big deal. I follow Jesus. And they're going back and forth arguing, and Paul's pulling out his hair. And in chapter 1, above those verses we just read, he says, You know what, guys? Was Christ, or excuse me, was Paul crucified for you? Did Apollos lay down his life for you? These other guys are just servants. We are about Jesus Christ and him crucified. At the heart of Christianity is Jesus Christ alone, and the foundation of all Christian teaching is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so after making this case that Jesus is the core and the gospel is the foundation of our teaching, he begins in verse 18 by saying, For the message of the cross is foolishness. To those who are perishing, the message of the cross is the foundation of Christian teaching, 
But Paul makes the case that it's foolish to those who don't follow Christ. That's the first blank if you're filling those in on your handouts. The gospel message sounds foolish to unbelievers. Now, if this statement seems unbelievable to you, let me suggest that you've spent a little bit too much time in recent months hanging around Christians only. If this statement that the gospel message sounds foolish just seems like, no, I I don't think that's the case, I don't think people really believe that, then you really do probably need to spend a little bit more time with non-Christians. Because believe me, back then and today, the gospel of Jesus Christ sounds like utter foolishness to those who have rejected the gospel. Like most of you, I love hanging around Christians. Most of the time, hanging around Christians is easier and more comfortable than hanging around non-Christians. But God has given us a mission here on earth to go into all the world and make disciples, to make Christians, to make followers of Jesus of all nations. So we can't do that unless we spend some time with those who reject the gospel. Paul summarizes his own culture so well in verses 22 and 23. So skip down and look at those verses again. He summarizes his culture well. Uh, He says in verses 22 and 23, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So Paul was exposed to two primary cultures. He grew up in a very Jewish culture, and the Jews believed, as they studied the Old Testament scriptures, that when the Messiah came, he was going to be like Captain Marvel and Superman and Wonder Woman and and Batman all rolled into one. Man, this Messiah that they were reading about in the Old Testament, he was going to be amazing. He was going to be stronger than the strongest guys they'd ever heard of. He was going to be a better leader than any leader they'd ever heard of. He was going to be an amazing Savior to sit on the throne of Israel, to drive out all those Romans that were occupying their nation, and he was going to sit on that throne and thump all of his enemies. And then comes Jesus. He didn't exactly match their ideal of what their Messiah would look like. Paul says that Jewish culture, the gospel message, and Jesus even himself seem weak, seem somehow emaciated or scrawny compared to this Messiah that they had lifted up in their minds. And then second culture that that Paul was exposed to that he rubbed soldiers with was the Greek and Roman culture. And they looked at the gospel and it seemed like utter foolishness to them because they valued wisdom. They valued insight. They valued science and, and this whole idea that a crucified criminal could somehow be wiser than their wisdom or stronger than their strong. It just didn't make any sense to them. It seemed utter foolishness to the non-Jews who weren't a part of the Jewish culture. But even after God opened the eyes of the blind and cleansed the lepers and, and raised the dead, even after Jesus did all those miracles, the Jews still wanted another miraculous sign. After the Greeks and Romans learned about the wisdom of Jesus' teaching, they still wanted more wisdom. They still wanted more knowledge. They still rejected Jesus Christ. So the cross of Jesus Christ, it was a stumbling block to the Jews because in their minds, Jesus' crucifixion was anything but a miracle. In their minds, it was the exact opposite of a miracle. They didn't see Jesus' crucifixion as a miracle of God, but as a curse of Satan. Because there was that verse in the Old Testament that said, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And so 
They took that literally, that Jesus is a curse. There's no way he could be from God. They might have seen it as a miracle if Jesus had been hanging on the cross and all of a sudden he popped the nails out of his wrists and, and jumped down off the cross with that spear still hanging out. And he's walking around with a spear hanging out, swinging it around, hitting people left and right. Wow, that's a miracle. Okay, maybe I should believe Jesus now. Maybe he's telling the truth. If, if Jesus had popped off that cross, maybe then they would have paid attention. But it made no sense that the Messiah, the, the great king of the Jews, would just die a criminal's death on the cross. Remember what some of the Jews said and shouted even at Jesus while he was hanging on the cross. The Jewish crowds were walking by as Jesus was hanging there and they yelled out and they said, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down off that cross if you are truly the Son of God. They made fun of him and they yelled at him and they mocked him. But Jesus had no intention of coming off that cross until he had finished what he had accomplished. So the message of the cross sounded as Foolish to Jews who rejected Jesus as Lord and Savior as it did to the non-Jews. Warren Wiersbe, I think, says it well. He writes, the Jews' emphasis was on miraculous signs, and the cross appears to be weakness. Because the Jews were looking for power and great glory, they stumbled at the weakness of the cross. They could, uh, how could anyone put faith in an unemployed carpenter from Nazareth who died the shameful death of a common criminal? That's pretty well said, don't you think? The Jews looked at Jesus and they didn't see a great teacher. They didn't see the Son of God. They didn't see the Messiah. They saw an unemployed carpenter. I think Nazareth is a podunk town. But he couldn't even hold his carpentry job in Nazareth. This guy's an unemployed carpenter. Who needs to listen to him? Remember, I've said in the past that Nazareth to the Jews was kind of like the daggett of the ancient world. They thought it was a podunk little town that no one comes who's in, worth anything comes out of that town. He could have been. We don't know for sure. We know his dad was. But uh, we know that he grew up until the age of 30, was there in Nazareth serving most likely with his dad most of the time. And so it would have been strange to them. Jesus, all of a sudden, seeming unemployed, seeming like he wasn't worth anything or bringing in an income like most Jews in those days did. So, the Jews rejected Jesus as Lord and Savior. To them, he was just an unemployed carpenter from this little town of Nazareth. Uh, in their minds, there was nothing miraculous about Nazareth. There was nothing miraculous about being a carpenter in Nazareth. And there was certainly nothing heroic about no longer being a carpenter in Nazareth. There was nothing heroic about hanging naked on a Roman cross, crucified as a common criminal. So for the past 2,000 years, Jewish unbelievers have stumbled over the message of the cross. Meanwhile, Gentiles, the non-Jews, have uh, listened to the message of the cross and they've called it foolish. It seemed foolish to them. Ancient Greece gave birth to some of the greatest philosophers of all time. You've heard of the big three in ancient Greece, Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle, and they prided themselves in these wonderful intellectual giants who waxed eloquently about philosophy and all things scientific. Uh, some of you have probably seen that movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. 
uh, where the Greek father is bragging about Greek culture. And there's that one wonderful scene where he's in the car and his daughter is in the back seat with one of her best friends. And he's bragging about Greece once again. And he asks the question, you need to tell me, please just say any word, say any word, and I'll tell you how it comes from the Greek. And so he says, I'll start it off. Arachnophobia. Arachna comes from the Greek word for spider. And phobia comes from the Greek word for phobos, for fear. Fear of spiders. Ha! Arachnophobia. It's Greek. Give me another word. And so they're going back and forth, and the daughters are shaking their heads in the back seat because dad eats, drinks, and sleeps Greece. That gives us a small taste of how it was in Paul's day. Greece had been on top of the world. And even though Rome came in and technically conquered Greece, Greek culture still permeated the Roman Empire. And so Greece was seen as the intellectual giant of the ancient world. And so these intellectual giants would look at the message of the cross, and it seemed like utter foolishness. In fact, the Greek general and statesman Aristides said this about the citizens in Corinth. He said, quote, on every street in Corinth, one met a so-called wise man who had his own solutions to humanity's problems. In other words, there in that sin city of the ancient world, Corinth, to whom uh, Paul was writing this letter, everywhere you went, you'd find someone who thought they had the answer to world peace or the solutions for the world's biggest problems. We can't relate with that today, can we? Everybody can uh, start a a vlog. Anyone can start their own YouTube channel. Anyone can start uh, their own uh, dissertation on on the, the secrets of life and the intricacies of the ancient world. Whatever it may be, we live in a world where everybody believes they deserve to have a voice and everyone should listen to their voice speak because they themselves have the answers. Well, these people who believed they had all the answers looked at that message of the cross, and it sounded to them absolutely ridiculous. Think about it. Receiving life from one who received death. Being blessed by one who was made a curse. Being cleansed by one who was made dirty. It sounded so foolish to them. And to many, it still sounds pretty foolish today. Therefore, Paul writes in verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, don't miss the but there, but to those of us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. Those of us who are believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we can see what unbelievers can't see. Those of us who are believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we can understand what unbelievers cannot understand. We can see and understand that the message of the cross isn't foolish, quite the opposite. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. I love how Matthew Henry uh, writes in his commentary about this point. He says this, in spite of all their wisdom, ignorance still prevailed. Iniquity still abounded. Men were puffed up by their imaginary knowledge and rather further alienated from God. And therefore it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save those that believe. How true that is. No matter how intelligent the Greek philosophers seem to be, the fact is they still didn't know God. And no matter how eloquent the Greek orators were, they couldn't talk themselves out of a single sin. 
regardless of how many universities they attended or how high their IQ soared, they were powerless to transform hard hearts or turn sinners into saints. Warren Wiersbe says it this way. He says, The message and miracle of God's grace in Jesus Christ utterly confounds the high and mighty people of this world. The wise of this world cannot understand how God changes sinners into saints, and the mighty of this world are helpless to duplicate the miracle. God's foolishness confounds the wise. God's weakness confounds the mighty. And Matthew Henry similarly says, All the valued learning of this world was confounded. It was baffled and eclipsed by the Christian revelation and the glorious triumphs of the cross. All the boasted science of the heathen world did not, could not effectually bring home the world to God. Think about that. With all of that great learning of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, Socrates couldn't erase a single sin from a human heart. Plato, with all of his wonderful writings and waxing eloquently about all things philosophy, he could not save a single sinner. And Aristotle, as wise as he was, if he were to take IQ tests today, his IQ would be off the charts. Aristotle could not save a single sinner from his sin. These guys, as much as they waxed eloquently, could not save a single sinner. And even today, all that we might invest in things that might erase a sin or save us apart from Christ is an utter and complete waste of money. Counseling can be very valuable, but I think we all understand that $10,000 in counseling sessions and $5,000 worth of self-help books can never transform a life like Jesus can transform a life. It never can. Only Jesus can transform a hard heart. As I've said very often to others in this church over the years, I I might have certain accolades in the eyes of the world. Yeah, I've got that master's degree. Yeah, I've got that certification that says I'm an ordained pastor of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I've been a pastor for 19 years. But with all of those accolades, I cannot soften a single hard heart. I cannot open a single closed mind. And I can't save a single sinner. I'm powerless to do it. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Amen? Only Jesus Christ can open a closed mind. Only Jesus Christ can soften a hard heart. Only Jesus Christ can save a lost soul. Only Jesus Christ can do that. That's why Paul says in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And I say amen to that. The message of the cross is more brilliant and more powerful than most people have ever realized. Over the past 2,000 years, how many lives have been radically transformed by Socrates? How many lives have been radically transformed by Plato or Aristotle? I don't know of any of you. Over the past few decades, how many lives have been radically transformed by Albert Einstein, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Hillary Clinton? I'm grabbing names here, folks. How many lives have been radically transformed by some of the intellectual giants 
of our modern age, not too many. Lives have been touched. Lives have been, to some extent, you might say transformed, radically transformed. Uh Uh-uh. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. In verse 19, Paul paraphrases Isaiah 29:14 as he says, "God will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent God will frustrate." That's for sure, isn't it? The gospel of Jesus Christ continues to baffle the world's greatest minds. The person of Jesus Christ continues to astound the world's greatest geniuses. Let me reread for you, starting in verse 20, these six verses again. Starting in verse 20, Paul says again, Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, Aristotle Socrates, Plato, Zuckerberg, Gates, whoever you name, Einstein, they could not help a single person know God. And so to the world this sounded so foolish, but God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God, and Christ is the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Don't you just love these last few verses? Many people look at Jesus hanging on the cross. They see a weak and a frail man. But with spiritual eyes, you and I can look at Jesus on the cross and see the power of God. We can see the power of God conquering every sin of every single person in the world. That's the power of God on that cross. Many people look at Jesus hanging on the cross and they see a very foolish man. After all, he could have laid laid low and avoided Jerusalem. He knew they wanted to kill him in Jerusalem. He knew if he went to Jerusalem, he was walking into the lion's den, walking into the hornet's nest. He knew that ahead of time. He could have laid low and avoided being killed, but he didn't lay low. He marches right into Jerusalem. He chose to walk into the lion's den, but with spiritual eyes, you and I can look at Jesus entering Jerusalem and hanging on that cross and see that through death, healing came through the suffering. Reconciliation came through the brokenness. Forgiveness came through his shed blood. Absolutely brilliant. Brilliant what he did. We serve an amazing, strong, wise Lord and Savior. I think we need to give him some praise and glory today. Amen. world looks at the cross and calls it foolish. We know the truth. It's absolutely brilliant. The world looks at the cross and sees it as a sign of weakness. We see the truth. It's really a sign of strength. Now, it's not only that Jesus Christ brought us a message that sounds foolish to the world. He chose vessels to communicate the message that sound foolish to the world. Look at verses 26 and following. Paul continues by saying, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. 
Not many of you were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let me encourage you to do what Paul asks us to do in verse 26. Take a moment and do this. He says in verse 26, think of what you were when you were called to become a Christian. Okay, front row guys, think about that. Think of what you were, who you were before you were called to be a Christian. Second row, third row, everyone in here, think of who you were before you were called to be a Christian. I'll give you a moment. Think of who you were. Next blank. You ready for this? Everybody sitting down? God chose fools to be saved. Oh, we got one amen off of that. God chose fools to be saved. Now, before you get too offended at Paul or at Dane, let me ask you. When you became a Christian, were you an intellectual giant? Any show? Were you an intellectual giant when you became a Christian? Were you a college professor at an Ivy League institution? Anyone? I know I wasn't. Did you get paid ten thousand dollars per speaking engagement because people paid big bucks to come and hear you wax eloquently about the intricacies of life? Anyone make the big bucks on speaking engagements because everybody viewed you as so brilliant? Not me. Did you write several New York Times bestsellers? No? Well, huh. Maybe you weren't the sharpest knife in the drawer when Jesus saved you. I know I certainly wasn't. Let me ask you another question. When you became a Christian, were you really influential? How many of you, when you became a Christian, had 100,000 followers on Twitter? You were super influential. Everyone wanted to follow you. Some of you are like, what's Twitter? My point exactly. Were you being interviewed by reporters from CNN and MSNBC and Fox News because they longed to get that interview with you because you were so influential and their ratings would be going through the roof when people heard that you were going to be in the next broadcast? No? Well, it sounds like maybe you were a bit of a nobody when Jesus saved you. I know I was. Verses 27 through 29, Paul writes, But God, and there's our but God for today, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. What a wonderful but God verse. Huh. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Let me ask you, were you one of the foolish things that God chose? And you may answer that question with a no if you choose. 
But the correct answer is yes. Were you one of the foolish things of the world that God chose? The biblical answer is yes. Some of us have never had a a non-Christian tell us point blank, you're a fool for believing in Jesus Christ. Some of us have never had a non-Christian tell us that to our faces. But believe me, they're saying it behind your back. The world looks at us and thinks we're foolish. Why on earth are we sitting here in a church chapel on a Sunday morning? Why on earth are we going to a worship service? Why on earth do we put money in the bag? Why on earth do we send our kids to Sunday school? Why on earth do we send our teenagers to youth group? Why on earth do we do these things? Why do we have these Bibles? Why do we spend time reading them? Why do we spend time praying? The world looks at us and thinks we're nuts. We got this crutch of Jesus and this crutch of Christianity we lean on and this crutch of the church. And if we were really smart and if we were really strong, we would stand on our own two feet and push church and God and Jesus and Bible aside. The world looks at us and may not say it to our faces, but they believe it. We're nuts. (laughs) I kind of like nuts, don't you, Robert? I like some good nuts. In the eyes of many people, we are complete morons for believing in Jesus, crucified and risen again. And that's okay with God, and it should be okay with us. He will use you, and he will use me, who the world calls fools, to put the world's wisdom to shame. And as the secular world around us calls uh, us intellectually and emotionally weak, God will use you and me as examples of strength and courage in the midst of life's battles. And as the secular world around us calls us lowly and despised, God will lift us up as his greatest treasure. We may be called fools today, but time will reveal to every critic that we are no fools who give what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. The world may look at us today and call us weak and call our Christianity a crutch, but time will reveal the truth. That Christianity is no crutch, and Jesus Christ is no crutch. He's so much more than that. He is our everything. He's not a crutch. He is our everything. Bible scholar Charles Ryrie writes these powerful words. He says, not only is the message of the cross foolishness to the perishing, but God uses those who would commonly be considered foolish, weak, and of no consequence to convey the message. An illustration of this truth was their own church there in Corinth, which did not include many wise, influential, or noble people. You see, God's purpose is to exclude all boasting in self. I can't brag about bringing people to Christ that may hear my message and decide to give their life to Christ and get baptized. I can't brag about that because the only good thing that comes out of my mouth is what Jesus Christ puts in this mouth of mine. I can't brag about anything I do for the church or what I do for Jesus because it's but by the grace of God I can do any of that stuff. Our job is to get out of the way and let him work through us. Less of Dane and more of him through me. And that's where we see real results kicking in. And so let me say, if you are here today and you know in your heart of hearts that God saved you, please erase in your mind any notion that he saved you because he was impressed by you. Sorry to break it to you. He didn't save you because he was impressed by you. He wasn't impressed by your towering intellect. 
He wasn't impressed by your amazing talent. And he certainly wasn't impressed by your rugged good looks. Sorry to break it to you. I'm sure many, many angels in heaven are a lot stronger than we are, a lot better looking than we are, and a lot more talented than we are. When we think of that slide we started with, that little video presentation of this little peanut planet in this vast universe, to think that somehow me as a little speck of dust on this peanut planet in this huge, unimaginably large universe somehow impresses God with my talent, my good looks, or my intellect. How crazy is that? No, God didn't choose you because he was impressed by you. God didn't save you because of you. God saved you in spite of you. When it comes down to it, God, even the angels in heaven, are so much greater, stronger, better looking than we are. You and I, I think the world is correct. You and I are foolish. You and I are weak. You and I are lowly. You and I are despised. But in his wisdom and in his power and in his grace, Jesus Christ saved us despite ourselves. Think about that. He saved you despite yourself, in spite of yourself. What a mighty and awesome God we serve. Three quick lessons. Lesson number one. Even though you are a tiny dot on a tiny planet that appears insignificant in our massive universe, you matter to God. That's why he sent Jesus for you. You may not have impressed him with your intellect or your good looks or your talent, but make no mistake about it. He loves you more than life itself. And I'll never be able to wrap my mind around this reality That little speck of dust stain on this peanut planet is loved by Almighty Creator God. But I can tell you it's true. You and I matter to God. We matter enough that He would come down in person and die the most excruciating death on the cross so that He wouldn't have to spend an eternity without you. Wow. That is love. Lesson number two. Never be ashamed of the gospel. It proclaims and displays the wisdom and the power of God. As you go through life, believe me when I say people will think you're nuts for following Jesus Christ 100%. Many people believe it's okay to believe in Christian beliefs. It's okay to go to church on occasion But if you make your life 100% all about Jesus, you're a freak. You're a nut. You're not thinking straight. People will think you're a fool for following Jesus. But you follow Jesus with everything you've got anyway. Because you know the truth. Jesus Christ is everything. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the very foundation of all truth. Lesson number three. Everything good in our lives has come from God. Therefore, there is no room for boasting about ourselves, but only room for boasting about God. Now, in a message like this, I think it's important to make sure that we don't misunderstand what I've said. 
and what God's Word teaches. God's Word does teach that you and I on our own are in no way impressive. We're not intellectual giants. We're not super talented. We're not super good looking. But God's Word is equally clear that you and I mean the world to God. And anything in yourselves that you look at and say, I lack value, I'm here to tell you today that God's Word makes it clear that you are incredibly, inestimably, that's a tough word to say, inestimably valuable to Him. You mean the world to Him. And when Jesus Christ comes into our lives, when we accept Him as Lord and Savior, we become more talented than we've ever been. Because we got Christ in me. We become more intellectual than we've ever been. Because we finally have the veils lifted and we understand pure truth. The truth of God and His Word. And we even become better looking. God transforms us inside and out. Something only He can do. Something only Jesus Christ can do. And so never think that you do not have value. Never think that you do not have worth. Never believe that you don't have a purpose. Jesus Christ came to make it clear from now and throughout eternity you have purpose, you have meaning, you have a calling by the Creator of this vast universe. And He wants to live inside of you and give you a fresh start and allow you to experience that value that He has seen in you all along, even when no one else did. Lord, we come to You thanking You for seeing value in us that the world doesn't see. For seeing strength in our weakness. For seeing beauty in our ugliness. For seeing hope in our hopelessness. Lord Jesus, I thank You that we are not the labels that the world gives us. We are not the fools that the world calls us in Christ. We are sons and daughters of the living God. Sons and daughters of the creator of this vast universe. Not brought into your family because we deserved it or earned it, but brought in by your grace and mercy because you loved us. You sent your Son to die for us, Father God. Thank you. Help us to walk in that value and worth, living for Jesus every day until you call us home to be with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and be standing right now as the praise team comes up. If you're here today and you've never made that decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we want to invite you to make that decision. Maybe you're here today and you're just going through some stuff.